You're listening to the Nonprofit Problem Solver Podcast, brought to you by KevKayak.com. Kev helps nonprofit leaders deliver more impact faster and easier, so they can be mission accomplished in 40 hours a week or less. For more information, visit KevKayak.com. Now, here is the host of Nonprofit Problem Solver, Kev Kayak. Kev Kyatt here. Welcome to Nonprofit Problem Solver. Thanks for tuning in. We're here to help. You are actually the Nonprofit Problem Solver. Our job is to bring you practical, tactical expertise that you can use right now, or maybe in an hour. You're about to hear the recording of a live call with an expert panel, and you're more than welcome to join these live calls. Just zip on over to nonprofitproblemsolver.com to register. In episode seven, we're back with marketing and fundraising. We start by getting an update from the panel about what's been working or not working during COVID. We then move to asking how exec directors and development directors can encourage and support their board members to be fully engaged in fundraising. Finally, we ask the panel to review how COVID has altered the standard wisdom around those basic development questions such as small versus large gifts, tactics to upgrade one-off gifts to recurring gifts, segmentation, and the like. All that over the next hour. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Nonprofit Problem Solver. This is episode seven. We're talking about marketing and fundraising. And we have uh, our esteemed panel, and they will uh, introduce themselves one at a time. We're going to start with Farrah Trumpeter. Hi, everyone. This is Farrah Trumpeter. I am Chief Growth Officer and partner at Big Duck. Big Duck is a communications firm that works exclusively with nonprofits. We focus on building strong brands, campaigns, and teams. I'm also on the board of N10 and really happy to be here today with all of you. Thanks. Uh, Sherry? Thanks, Kev. Uh, my name is Sherry Kwong Taylor. I'm talking to you from Chicago today, and I help nonprofits uh, diversify their funding. So I work with a lot of people who uh, feel like they might be a little too heavy on either government funds or program revenue or event revenue, and help them learn how to start getting larger gifts from individuals. Great, Nathan. Hey, what's up, everyone? Nathan Webster with NWN Associates. We were a nonprofit consulting agency evolved to marketing agency because we love helping folks declutter and simplify what marketing truly is confusing. So we help you in doing what's needed so that your brand can be monetized so you don't work as hard for your brand, but your brand works hard for you. And Nathan joins us from the Portland area, just to clarify. So it's still morning for him. Good morning. Uh, (laughs) Molly. Well, good morning, Nathan. Good afternoon to most of us, I guess. Um, I am from Business Volunteers Unlimited. I'm director of marketing and events there. And at BVU, we work to connect businesses and nonprofits through board matching, pro bono, team volunteer projects. Um, and we get businesses more deeply connected to their community and the nonprofit needs. Great. Uh, Julia? Hi, uh, I'm Julia Campbell. I'm in the Boston area and I'm the founder of J. Campbell Social Marketing. And I help my consulting clients with their digital marketing and digital fundraising 
And my goal is to help them demystify and get more clarity and confidence in what they're doing online. So to bring everything that they're doing offline that works, help them bring it into the digital world. Excellent. Marianne. Hello, everyone. I'm Marianne Dirsch with Courageous Communication from St. Louis, Missouri. And I help nonprofits build their influence so they can ask for and receive what they want, need, and deserve without feeling rejected, ineffective, or pushy. Excellent. Tammy? Good afternoon, everyone. I am from Tampa, Florida. The weather is actually really great here. Um, <laughs> I am the founder and chief strategist here at Innovo Strategic Consulting. Um, my focus is really helping our clients build phenomenal strategic plans, uh, fundamental development plans. I also help my clients with building social enterprises. And the goal is social impact. The goal is to determine how can we help our clients develop innovative solutions to address our world and our community's most pressing problems. Thank you for having me. Great. And uh, last but not least, Tasha. Hello, everyone. I am in the San Francisco Bay Area, so it is still relatively early for me. Not too early, but it's great to see you all. Um, and I'm the founder and CEO of Joy Raising. We are a consultancy that supports organizations with their um, development as well as diversity, equity, and inclusion work. And when those projects come together, uh, we're at our best. And so we help um, folks to have those hard conversations to help them move to the next level, whether it's garnering more resources or being more inclusive um, in the way that they, um, they behave. And uh, really happy to be here. Excellent. Okay, so I think you guys can see we have a uh, not just an illustrious, esteemed panel, but a, a diverse set of very talented folks. So I would encourage people to uh, have a discussion in the chat. Feel free to uh, identify someone if you want to ask a specific question. I'll try and catch up as we go. We have about half a dozen questions or so that we're going to work our way through. And uh, if there's time at the end for some Q&A, we'll pick up what's been going on in the chat. If you want to uh, ask something specific or if you want to share something from your own experience that is relevant to the discussion, please feel free to do so. So we're going to start. Uh, it's been a month since we convened last and just uh, asked the panel if uh, in that interim during this challenging COVID time, we've had any breakthroughs, any big successes, any interesting things that have popped out into the, in the marketing and, and fundraising world. I think, Julia, you've got an example. Yes. So clearly there has been a, a lot of um, there's been a lot of bad things happening. I don't know how else to put it. Um, 36 million Americans on unemployment. That's the last number that I counted. And many, many, many nonprofits I talk to are really, really struggling. But there have been some glimmers of hope. I recently spoke to um, a student of mine. I do online courses. And his name's Emil. Um, and he was on a recent Facebook Live that I did. He is the volunteer executive director of the Filipino American Historical Society and Museum. And it's an all volunteer, all volunteer organization, very, very small, and it's in California. He started his job on March 15th. So as you can imagine, it was a big learning curve, uh, learning curve for him. So he was very he was struggling because he didn't know how to ask. He felt really uncomfortable. He wasn't sure exactly what he should be doing. I mean, it was really trial by fire, honestly, like March 15th, starting a brand new job. But 
he got over that, that fear that he had and he started just sharing his personal story on his social media channels of how his parents came to America and his experience growing up as a Filipino American and how he grew up and what he experienced in California. And it actually just became this really unifying moment for his community. And the museum, of course, and the historical society, their doors are closed right now and no one can be together physically. But he found this unifying theme that he could really unite his community around and, and have these conversations. And then he, he started a Facebook fundraiser, really just saying, you know what, I'm going to start it. If we get a couple hundred bucks, it'll be fine. And he raised a few thousand dollars in 24 hours, you know, just to just kind of keep things going and pay the rent and keep the lights on. So I think, you know, what I've learned from that is just being authentic and honest and starting with where you are and starting with your story and your personal experience with what you are seeing right now and what's going on in your community and your history and tying it to your mission, people are going to respond to that. And they, he did not get any negative blowback from that. He didn't get any negative comments. In fact, his community said, we miss this opportunity. They had book clubs, they had readings, they had art installations, you know, they had all of these things going on. So his community was, was craving that connection and he just brought it online as best he could. And he tried something different and he said, you know what, if it doesn't work, it's not the end of the world, but it actually ended up working. So I'm really proud for Emil. Yeah, I, I love that idea of uh, not just being authentic, which was a key message we had last time, but also being experimental and yeah. trying new things out because some things are just not going to uh, work as well. Uh, any anything others before we move on to the to, to the first question? Is it a quick segue into that? I have one that I wanted to share. Um, I uh, just recently joined the board of Eat Real Certified, and this is an organization that provide is trying to increasingly provide real food for more kids, understanding that the way that a lot of our kids um, get fed is through our public school systems, and so they have um, relationships with districts. And when I joined, they helped me understand that they were really um, not in a good place financially, they had an amazing new executive director, but they were worried. And what they realized in response to what's happening to all of us right now is that they had a role to play in helping to broker relationships between food providers and schools. And so they leveraged those relationships and then used social media to do something they called um, Rainbow Taco Tuesdays. And they got celebrity chefs involved and they now have Ronnie Lott involved and um, really just tried, as you said, they were experimental and they knew they wanted to stay in their lane, be narrow, but also leverage the relationships that they have. And we had a board meeting yesterday and you know, celebrated that they now have six months of, of um, run in terms of their resources. Um, and you know, it's just a real celebration of when you're authentic, when you figure out what you have to offer, it really can um, be a slingshot moment um, that has been transformational for that organization. Yeah, that's, that, that's great. It's a great lesson. Uh, okay, so let's move into the questions. And in thinking about these, I found myself asking what may appear initially to be relatively generic questions about fundraising and marketing anytime, but obviously our circumstances now are, are unique. And I think folks are trying to work out how they adjust what they would normally do to uh, a, a, a 
accommodate the current situation. The first question is about engaging the board. Last time we were uh, pretty insistent that people had to accelerate their fundraising. They shouldn't sit back and wait and see how things settle out, but in fact, uh, uh, step up their game. And, and now I want to ask about how you involve your board in doing that. And I want to ask Sherry that first, uh, and then I'll come on to others in the panel. So Sherry, how do you, in, how do you engage your board to participate fully in the fundraising challenges we have now? Sure. Well, I, I can imagine uh, you're not surprised that uh, I get a lot of uh, comments from executive directors who are um, who, who feel like their, their board really doesn't understand they're supposed to be fundraisers. Let's put it that way. Um, so I, I rarely get the, oh, my board's rocking it. They're connecting me with everybody. They, they're well connected and, um, you know, they're regularly bringing in gifts, right? Uh, and probably on top of that, my board loves asking for money. <laughs> I've never heard that. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I, I say that because um, I think, you know, obviously this is a challenge in any time, but um, it's been interesting to me to watch the boards, um, the ones who maybe were, you know, were running relationships and were, um, I mean, really supporting the exec director, executive director and development director um, versus the ones who maybe didn't totally know what they were supposed to be doing in fundraising in the first place. And so my suggestions to, to many of my clients and students that I've talked to is, um, you know, this is a time where um, we really need to model uh, to our board how it's done sometimes. And that seems like, oh, but can't they just, can't they just connect me with those people that they know? But here's the thing. I find that boards, you know, even though they're, you know, often entrepreneurs, they're, um, you know, leaders in the community, you know, running great businesses of their own, they themselves haven't ever needed to know how to connect to a donor and maybe lead that donor to asking for $20,000, right? And so I, I say that I really sometimes kind of put it back on the, the DD or, or ED and say, let's model it for them, right? Because we, we oftentimes need to demystify that process. And so right now, Kev, um, you know, I have a lot of groups who are, who are still trying to keep and being successful at it, those top 30, top 50 individual donor relationships really warm and still soliciting during this time. Um, and so I'm really challenging them to say, show the board how it's done. Say, hey, hey guys, I'm going to keep every Wednesday and Friday between 9 and 10 a.m. open. Um, let's just hop on the phone with that one person that you brought to our event, you know, last year. Let's just have a 20-minute, here's what's going on, let me get to know you. It's not an ask, you know, it's, it's, um, it's it, let's keep the relationships alive. So oftentimes, we have to show uh, the board that that's an actually a really important step in that donor experience. So uh, I'm a big believer in modeling it and not just kind of saying, hey, you know, send me a list of 10 names. So modeling not just the the the, the ask, but the cultivation, stewardship, yeah. and so on. Marianne, what are you hearing from people that you're working with and, and what advice are you giving them uh, uh, tactically about engaging their board and getting them to participate? 
Um, so I just did a webinar last week about this, like help my board won't fundraise during coronavirus. What do I do? Uh, <laughs> great title. I, what? It's a great title. <laughs> well, but we want said, answers. We want answers. Well, and one person said, I, I can't even send this to my board because they wouldn't even come to this because they think they're going to get like beat up around it. So I said, so I can do another webinar that says help. You know, I'm a board member charged to raise money during coronavirus and I don't know what to do. Um, and so I always assume that everyone's doing their best, right? Let's just assume everyone's doing their best. And really, I think that this situation um, and what I'm seeing are triggers around money, right? So money's a trigger. And what we often neglect is that fundraising is uh, asking for money and money is a trigger. And the money mindset that goes into what people what what's what messages are we telling ourselves around they won't ask it's too burdensome it's not the right time that's feeding into that and and so um what i what i tell people to do is really just honoring folks where they're at and instead of getting frustrated that they're not doing what you want them to do what i love what sherry said because i put in the chat you got to embody the change that you want to see and when i talk to eds are they my board's not engaged what do i do and i say so what it is what is it about what you're doing that makes it okay for this dynamic to be at play and that's sometimes a hard question for me to ask and a hard question for people to hear that i need to know you have to step up into greater leadership and mastery and having the conversations and calling them to greater the um, actions. And then the next thing is really then meeting them where they're at, understanding what the triggers and the barriers are to doing this because they can be really personal. And so instead of getting frustrated that they're not doing what you want them to do, like really meeting them where they're at and understanding what those barriers are and then helping them, like Sherry saying, like helping them walk through that process because I really believe that most people, they want to do it. They just don't know how, and they're afraid to ask for help, um, and they're afraid to admit that they don't know how. So when you make that okay, then it becomes okay. And then when you have a pro – people like a process. People like a process. They want to be led through a process. Like, I have a process. I will teach you. That's what I teach people. And, and for me personally, my business, what I've been switching to is I'm work, I work mostly with organizations, and I am grounded in organizational change. And also I found that – individual board members and individuals inside nonprofits are like, I want the help. My organization isn't ready, but I am, right? Like I'm ready to step yeah. up. So that's mm -hmm. kind of what I've been really focusing on is helping individuals step up and so that they can then be the thing that transforms the organization. Does that, that make sense? Yeah, yeah, that's excellent. Molly, uh, can you talk a bit about what you're hearing from the board members that BVU works with or engages and tries to bring on to uh, local boards and some of their challenges at the moment with participating in fundraising? Yeah, I think what Marianne said is, is right on um, as far as giving them a process to follow. You know, board members want to help. They just want to be told kind of what's the next thing they can do. So I, I kind of put together, you know, I think it's not a bad idea to ask them for their personal contributions now. Um, I, I wouldn't be afraid of doing that. If they can't, they can't, uh, you know, and, and then this is a time for them to brush up their elevator speech, um, to start kind of maybe do a webinar with them, have one of the board members reach out to a, a fellow board member and, um, you know, start working together in that way. Uh, I think training your board on how they can ask you how to help is a really important thing. So, 
kind of emulating what you want to see. Um, tell them how they can help right up front. And I think uh, just keeping the lines of communication open, we've seen great success for, with people who, executive directors who are, are keeping, you know, a really close contact with their funders, with their grant funders and their board members and, and you know, sponsorship companies. I've seen that be successful at BBU. That's great. Uh, now, Farah, and I'll come to you next, Julie. We're, we're focusing now also on some of these challenges about uh, that board members may feel about actually telling the story, getting their elevator speech together. What Are there specific things that are challenging now, uh, board members, than, say, in pre-COVID times? I mean, there's always been an issue around uh, that that level of communication and the, the elevator speech and such. How is it different now, and, and, and what are you seeing with people that you work with? I don't know if I've necessarily seen in terms of a board member being able to be an ambassador that it is um, wholly different. The challenges I have seen related to that is where boards are perhaps older board members. They are used to meeting in person, and especially if it's for a local community organization, they're not a national board. So they are much more used to coming to the office or to a space um, in fact, I was supposed to do a messaging training on March 17th in Florida, and that got canceled. Um, and that was supposed to be a big messaging training related to a campaign that was coming out. And now we've just they've put the campaign on hold, um, and now we're going to hopefully do it in the fall. Uh, but their board is not used to getting on a Zoom. They are most of their board members are 70 plus, um, and so I think if you've had that's the bigger challenge as opposed to whether or not you can represent the organization. I did want to share as part of the conversation two things. First, there is a book that, um, an article and then a book that Kay Sprinkle Grace wrote over 10 years ago that really looks at board members, she calls it the triple A, being yeah. askers, ambassadors, um, and advocates. So I'll, I'll chat out a link to an article about that. And I think that's a really helpful framework to think of, to, to talk through with each board member. How can you be an asker? How can you be an ambassador? How can you be an advocate? What does that mean for you based on our organization, the board I'm on for N10? We often will sort of have a AAA action in our updates. So the CEO, Amy Sample Ward, will say, here's an ask you can do. Here's a way you can advocate for us. And sort of it's a framework and a language we now use. So getting people comfortable with that. Um, that and then, then related, into the process that we've heard people tell that Marianne and, and, and Molly yeah. mentioned that sort of structures that process, doesn't it? Exactly. Exactly. And then related to that, to the idea of making it easy, you know, with N10, our big conference was canceled and the members of the board actually organized a peer-to-peer -peer fundraising campaign. And we have gone online and done that. Now that's a board that's the opposite of the other board I was telling the story for, pretty tech savvy, younger board, comfortable with tools. Um, and went online and created a campaign. And I think that's a really specific thing you were asking before about tactical things board members can do. If you have set up, whether it's a Facebook fundraiser or some other kind of crowdfunding campaign, helping them set up a page, showing them how easy it is to do, even if you spend 10 minutes on the phone with them, you'll be able to get them set up. And I think also using board members to make calls to your major donors, to send handwritten notes, you know, send them a stack of papers and envelopes and cards. I mean, they're, they're home with time, potentially, just like you are. It doesn't always have to be they could be part of the cultivation process, not necessarily just the ask. Yeah, that's great. Julia, uh, Farah's mentioned there a bit about uh, perhaps a generational difference, and it was less less about the content perhaps of the story or the message, but about the means that it's communicated and shared. Do you want to talk about that from, from your perspective again, how, how uh, tactically we can help boards engage? Well, what I see happening, and certainly what I was guilty of when I was a development director, 
I would go to the board and say, hey, everyone, we really need to share some stories. <laughs> What does that what does that mean exactly? Or we really need to send out some emails or we really need to make some calls and just expect them to know what that means. So when you're a development director, when you're a marketing director or an executive director and you're dealing with the board, I would reiterate what everyone else has said. Give them the specific marching orders and the specific instructions. And if you can give them examples of what you're thinking about, that's even better. Because what I've seen in my work, and I know anyone on this call that is a consultant, the majority of our work is really therapy. It's really like couples therapy between <laughs> the marketing department and the development department or the development department and the ED or the ED and the board. So one person is hearing a different story and you're trying to say something and you have all these assumptions and you have you know, the curse of knowledge around digital tools or email marketing or whatever it is that you're trying to convey, you know that storytelling works, you know that these things work and you've seen them work, but you can't assume that the board members have the same knowledge as you do and the same experience that you do. So to me, really coming to the board with a plan and a step-by-step, -step, like this is how we're going to do it and this is what I would like to do and can I get your input on this plan? And what do you think of this plan and how can we best implement this plan? What are some obstacles that we could face? So helping them rather than simply telling them this is what you want them to do and assuming that they know. So I think a good example is an organization that I'm working with, they really wanted to share stories about clients and they wanted to be really honest and kind of visceral about what's going on right now. And the board was very reticent to do it because the board was telling themselves a story that this is going to be ethically wrong. This is going to violate our standards. This is going to put clients in danger. But what the development director was trying to do was something completely different. So if you can show examples, say, give specifics, give a time frame, give maybe three or four specific steps that you're going to take, and then give the board members an opportunity to have input on the plan and see where they could maybe fit in. Um, but too often we're very vague. We say, we need to fundraise right now. We need to do, tell stories right now. But we don't give specifics or examples as to what that means. So then people's imaginations can run wild. So I think my biggest tip is to cultivate and curate a lot of examples, share them with the board, walk them through and get their feedback. That, that's great. That seems like a really good structure to a story as well. Uh, Tesha, I want to ask you about uh, the opportunities that uh, we, we, are, we need to be pursuing as uh, uh, both, both as employees or staff members and boards and, and what sorts of things are, are out there at the moment. I'm going to come to, to Tammy and Nathan next. I know you guys have a bit of a social enterprise hat too as well, and they're slightly different uh, funding opportunities. What What's out there right at the moment? Is there things that, uh, are there funding sources that people are neglecting perhaps? Uh, or is money being left on the table? Where, where should we be directing, assuming we get the storytelling and messaging as we've heard, where should we be directing those now? Go ahead, sure. Tasha. Um, thank you. And I just want to add one last step to all that Julia shared, which I think was really um, helpful, is that circling back and showing them the impact of what they've done can be really encouraging. And because I think, you know, we're trying new things, we're leaning into discomfort, but if they can see that it matters, 
then it makes it more likely that they'll do it again. But in terms of, you know, where's the money? I think um, when we look out at where people are um, giving and how and and how organizations are giving, there's a lot of very specific COVID response right now. And if that's not what you do, um, you might say, well, you know, should I even be fundraising? The answer is yes. And I think what I've seen is the most effective fundraising and based on data that I've seen is that, that folks are giving to where they were giving before COVID. And so the priorities that they have, they still have. They are very concerned about those organizations being able to continue. And so um, I think money is being left on the table if you say, oh, well, they gave once. Now, I did um, a pretty successful online uh, virtual campaign where we raised, it was almost $350,000 in 48 hours. And some of those biggest gifts came from people who had already given this year who we hadn't necessarily gone back out to to ask again, but they care. They cared early and they still care. And so I would say, you know, don't be shy about going back to those who, are, who have already supported you because that's really where a lot of the donor focus is on is right now. Other outside, other than COVID, it's on what they already cared about. Right. Excellent. Tammy, what are you seeing in the field? Um, so, if I could just really quickly, because about the board question, is that okay if I add something to that? Because totally. I yeah. my chair. I know I'm, I'm really, I have a good poker face. Um, so I've been, you know, one of the things I've been reflecting on, so I love working with boards. My main focus in consulting is I actually work with boards first. They are the root of the organization, I think. And I'm sorry if I missed your name, but someone mentioned in the chat pod that the board is really responsible for the sustainability of the organization. And they have a fiduciary responsibility. And so there's a legal responsibility that the board has. If the organization fails, we're looking to the board. And so I don't, I say that nicely to my clients, but I let them know that it is the board's responsibility to ensure fiscal uh, sustainability. So one of the first things that I do is I ask board members to go back to their why. And I think Marianne mentioned that. Your why is your core. Focus on why do we do what we do? What is our mission? So that's the first thing I would do with my board members is, why do we exist? And let that be what, like the, the blood that runs through your veins, let that excite them. The second thing I would do is focus on compassion. So whenever we're fundraising, and this is something I've heard a lot in our field of fundraising and field of fundraising and marketing is, how can we be compassionate to the people we're asking money from, but also how can we be compassionate to ourselves, to the people that we're serving? It's very important. Then I would revisit two plans, your strategic plan and your fundraising plan. So I'm actually in the process. So my brain, I'm switching like gears right now because I've, I've been working through my fundraise, my uh, client's fundraising plan and all over it is the board's role in that fundraising plan. If the board was not included in that fundraising plan, so th that's where the problem is. There's a root problem issue. So make sure that your board is um, involved in that fundraising plan process and revisit your strategic plan, revisit what programs and initiatives should we put on the back burner? What are we doing and why are we raising money? The last thing that I would do is one thing that I love doing as a consultant and I'll segue to your question, Kev, is um, the last thing that I would do is I do with my clients is I create individualized board fundraising plans for every board member. So they have an individual goal. One board member can have 100,000, another board member can have 3,000, but everyone has an individualized goal. And I'm happy to share my template. I actually have been using this even as I was a fundraiser uh, um, with multiple organizations, but I use that individualized fundraising template as a guide for the board member to know 
what is my goal and how will I get there? And I give them all the tools and strategies that they need to fundraise. So if you can do all of these things, you're kind of like in a good place to help your board get from zero to, to hero. So that's something that I, I just wanted to mention because it's something that I do in my work. Well, I think that's, that's great because you're, you're basically saying that the question of how you engage your, your board starts at the planning stage. It shouldn't be something that you're trying to work out later. And we've picked this up in, in other episodes when we've been looking at uh, either talent or the board, which are two different topics. But we, we talk about uh, recruiting and onboarding board members with clear expectations about not just their legal fiduciary role, but about their active engagement in um, both uh, cultivating and stewarding uh, donors. Uh, did, you, did you have anything else there, Tammy? I didn't, I'm sorry, I cut you off there. You did. I know your question. What was your original question? I'm sorry. It was about opportunities being left on the table uh, where, there were, where there, was, there was money um, and, and, and where people we should be directing our efforts. Yeah, so I'll answer this quickly. So my expertise when it comes to fundraising is corporate and foundations. That's where I've done a lot of my fundraising in. And I think I mentioned this in the last in the last session that we had is look for, if you want to raise corporate dollars or if you're interested in, especially in these COVID-19 in this, in this era that we're in, if you're trying to re-engage or build some sort of a corporate sponsorship partnership program, the first thing that I would do is look at your mission and look at partnership opportunities. I think dollars get left on the table when we're just so focused on the financial ask that we're not thinking about how can we invite foundations and corporations to co-create solutions to issues that are COVID-19 related or issues that are not. I think corporations are, and foundations are looking to the nonprofit sector to determine what are some ways can we collaborate to, to address some of these issues. One of the things with COVID-19 is that it is highlighting inequities in our society. It's showing up and it's right in front of our faces and it's hard to see. I mean, we started out authentically saying, we're in some hard times, y'all. So how can we come together? How can all sectors, government, nonprofit, corporations, Social enterprises come together to co-create long-term sustainable solutions. If we can do that as a nonprofit sector, dollars will be left on the table because we're all working together to co-create some of these solutions. So looking for, looking for imagination in our partners uh, and not, not immediately just the dollars, but the dollars will follow with that. Nathan, where, where, the, where, the, where are the best opportunities now? Man, so much has been said. Uh, let, let me see if I can pick up some of this stuff that make it real succinct here. First and foremost, um, it's so much easier as a for-profit to get stuck in the muck. And um, the thing, like the things that we are, let's say, as nonprofit leaders, we are scared to sell. And the problem is now that we are in this opportunity to sell. Uh, part top of the funnel, the lead generation stuff. We we don't know what to do next because we we don't know how to close. The sales and the marketing departments are no longer talking. They're disjointed because we did it on a fundraising event, and now it's like, oh, what am I supposed to do? How do I do this? I don't I don't know. In the for profit sector, I've I've found it's so much easier, especially for board members, to treat someone out for coffee or take them out to dinner rather than writing a check. So this is where we have to get better with one asking. And sometimes it's just, just ask for permission. 
Sometimes you don't need permission. Just ask for forgiveness, doggone it, and, and make sure that you ask at the end of the day, even start off the conversation, say, look, I need to sit down and talk with you because we need to talk about your commitment. Some of those people in leadership, at C-suite or at, at the board member level, are not having those uncomfortable conversations that need to be had. So I love with whoever said that, your therapist, like, hey, you ain't lying. That's, that You ain't lying about that. Therapist all day, every day. The other side I, w- I want to mention is um, this is a time for when it comes to the the marketing side, like you like as I was mentioning before, the sales pitch to the close needs to be more airtight. And and the problem is pe- people are going in, they're not fully prepared, they haven't done their research, they don't know how to close. And then not all the time you're going to have a 100% close rate. So how do you follow back up? And there's no plans for that. There's no templates for that. As nonprofits, I'm going to say I know firsthand it's so much harder than on the for-profit side. For-profit side, you can, I mean, it's so much easier to close. But for for-profits, they want you to give your firstborn, your house, and your, your legacy. You don't trust. So this is where, like, we as nonprofits, yes, we do this out of passion, out of our heart, but that's not why people are given. So I, I think Julia mentioned before, uh, last one, but this is going back to storytelling. If you're telling the story correctly, there should not be a potentially, potentially not, might not be a need to ask, but still ask because people, if they are committed and connected to what you're doing, this going back to the why, I think someone said, uh, I think Ferry even put a, uh, the, the Simon Sinek why, like go back to the why. Like if they're not connected, not engaged, hey, just walk on off. Just they might not be the right person, the right fit for when you're bored. But then for the donations and sponsorships, you gotta find the right fit. And sometimes, you know, there's too much stuffing of we just gotta get these numbers, and it's like you don't have the right fit. So when you come back for the next year's uh, ask, they're they're nowhere to be found. Well, they weren't a good fit in the first place. So uh, I think this is where. Uh, get so caught up on numbers rather than what's the true vision and the mission of the organization. Yeah. I, I, I love that. You're looking um, from with that, with that why lens, still looking at how marketing and fundraising work together. You're talking about a funnel, talking about uh, donor cultivation and, and, and so on. And, and, and what I want to ask the panel now shift uh, again, it's something a relatively generic question uh, about marketing and fundraising, but how it, how it's different now. And that is, <clears throat> the tension between going for um, a larger number of small gifts versus spending time going for a smaller number of larger gifts and how you, how you uh, d- decide what, which to focus on. And the second tension, which runs alongside that, is how you move the one-off gift or the end-of-the-year gift to a recurring gift. And those are sort of two things that people want to be Thinking about how is that different now, uh, and I'll go back to, to Sherry and Marianne in the first instance here. How, how are those two tensions playing out in, in the current situation, Sherry? Yeah, I think if we look at, to me, as I watch organizations who are strong right now, who have solid reserves or have, you know, going into this, um, they were the ones that, that weren't only focused on large gifts or only focused on small gifts, or only focused on events, they were the ones who were really doing this in a balanced way. So, um, you know, in, in my world, I teach uh, nonprofits how to secure about 50 to 75% of their revenue from, from like a top 30 portfolio. 
Um, that doesn't mean that the, you know, the smaller gifts, the recurring gifts, the monthly gifts are not important. They're hugely important. Uh, but to me, the name of the game has been balance. And so, you know, my clients who, who learned how to do that in 2019 really went into 2020 pretty strong. You know, we have a couple of them who are like, yikes, I've never had this much money in the bank. And so that balance model, I mean, it just makes sense, right? We want, we want diversity of giving. Um, that balance model is, is the name of the game. The, the, the challenge happens when, you know, we've kind of alluded to that of, you know, when an ED has, is an absolute expert at their mission, but they've never needed to know how to do major gift cultivation or how would I take somebody who's giving a thousand dollars, but gosh, I see their name on like on the $20,000 mark on that annual report. How do I lead them into that? And, and what does that process look like? So, um, you know, that's when you have that fear of fundraising and I don't know how to do that. And so I'm a huge believer in, in breadth of gift, um, but making sure that we're putting just as much time into, into each one of those segments. And that's part of the fundraising strategy and planning is about how to have that balance uh, to begin with. Right? 100%. Uh, Marianne, are you seeing people uh, who perhaps have not been balanced or struggling with trying to address it uh, in, in the current circumstances? And what are you yeah. telling them to do? So um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk a little bit more about what Nathan said around how um, the for-profit world, like an exchange of money for goods is, a, is, a, is this is a um, relationship that we have all day long, right? And the way it works best for us is, is that balance, right? I pay for something and you get it, yeah, and you get something back. In the social value of fundraising, it feels imbalanced. Like I'm asking you for a lot of money and I'm not getting anything back. And that feels wrong. And so we, how we've compensated for that is with events. So I can sell you a $300 ticket to a party and I'm going to give you booze and food and you get to get dressed up and you get to meet people and, you know, maybe like see a, uh, you know, a celebrity or something. And then that feels equal. So, and that's, but that's not philanthropy in a sense. So what I'm seeing is that there are organizations. I just had a conversation today as we move to virtual events, because I don't think we're going to be honestly in a ballroom together, three or 400 people for a very long time. So how can we create like virtual events? Well, there it's because people are paying for an experience and this is a different experience. And so what you have are people who are like, yeah. So again, meeting people where they're at and understanding that they were there for the the experience, they paid money to have an experience. When you take away that experience, they may not, they're not invested in your cause. And so what this is allowing us to do is the opportunity actually to really connect with the right people who are invested in our cause. So I think the, the absence of events is an incredible gift. And I know some people aren't feeling like it's a gift right now, but it truly <laughs> is an incredible gift for you to really become stewards and philanthropists and for your board to be comfortable and knowing because what what is and you know me i'm always about what is that underlying thing that underlying issue is they think fundraising is a burden and they think fundraising is a burden because it doesn't feel fair right i how am i supposed to ask sorry my dogs only bark when i'm on zoom calls oh god 
So what is it, why doesn't it feel fair? Because they don't feel like they're getting anything back. But what they, so helping them understand that they're getting so much back. They're helping people connect to their power and their purpose and leave a legacy and all kinds of things. So we have to help teach them that this is a fair exchange, right? And and so, and I just love, the, I, I think that, in the absence of events, we're going to have more of the right people, like quote unquote, in the room, the right people in our orbit, who are truly committed to our cause and who are gonna be with us for the long haul. And that's what we really want. We want those long-term devoted partners, investors and um, co-creators with us in our future. And I feel like that is what this is allowing us to do. I just had a conversation today with a client in Chicago who said, um, you know, I, we had all these corporate sponsors and they would fill the room, but they were just bringing people who were, you know, they didn't care about our cause. And I realized the right people weren't in the room. And I said, well, this is your opportunity now to get the right people organized around what you want to do. And I, and then, and so for me, that is the biggest shift. And that is, that is, Truly, like they feel like teaching all of us that events aren't philanthropy, and 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 galas are time sucks, and <laughs> I yeah. I could go off on that. Wait, you know. Um, let me let me bring yeah. Tasha in. Last time, Tasha, you you made a really I think poignant point that a lot of people uh, that resonated with a lot of people, which is asking why are we gathering and who's here and and what's that for. And and uh, I just like to hear your response. I don't think Marin's disagreeing with that but taking it to a, a deeper level. Do you, want to, do you want to comment on that? I would love to um, because I do agree with much of what Marianne said, but I also think that events can be proof that you're not alone in your support and that events can also bring people along who feel like they're not engaged, but they, they come along and they learn and they, they get excited about being a part of something that's bigger than themselves because I think that's a, a big part of what you get back is that you get to be a part of something that is making a change greater than your gift, whether it has one zero or five on it, right? You're helping to move the needle on, a thing, on something. And so I've been involved in a bunch of virtual events for that reason, which is that we need to talk to people. It's not that we couldn't take the time to talk to them one-on-one, -on -one, but talking to them collectively makes them feel um, like the gift, uh, more of the impact of the gift. It's not a substitute for really bringing in those, you know, bringing those um, larger, uh, more engaged donors closer. But there, I do um, think that there are some, some things that, um, that we can still have um, if we show people that they're a part of something bigger. So I think, so uh, bring Nathan in there because the idea of a funnel and a, and a fundraising strategy linked say to an event still needs to know the audience and understand what that cultivation and, and stewardship journey is going to be like for the people who you're targeting the event at. Yeah, Marianne talked about how you can absolutely capitalize on this online opportunity because people are looking to connect and engage, not just be caught up on the vanity stuff. Well, look, I'm here. So when you look at some of the larger entities, organizations, they have, I mean, coming back to know your audience, look at the Zoom call, it's majority women. You're more than likely to be more successful like in a gala, but what do those guys do? Take me to the golf range, take me golfing. Majority of larger organizations have a golfing event. You have to do something for both so we can say, hey, hey babe, hey boo, you wanna come, come? I'm not going to that. You know, so this is where we gotta also remember who are the decision makers, don't forget, we have millennials now 
that are part of this new wave of of giving and their donations are not caught up in that gala, not caught up in the golfing. A maybe it's a gaming competition. You, you don't know. Maybe it's just at a coffee shop. So this is where sometimes we get so stuck on uh we gotta target this this audience or this is our um ST well I won't go that far, but uh this is who our audience is. Here I will say it STP segment, target and position yourself in the right way so mm-hmm. that when you are going about uh, asking for this person or asking for that person, in my experience, I learned, and I, I, I'm just keeping it real, I'm a big black tall guy. So uh, when it comes down to it, I'm not the best person to go and approach like little older white women. So what I had, I had volunteers to do that. And I they I, I was not going to get anywhere, but they got a lot further than I would. So you got to also know who is asking these people. They might not be the right people asking. It's not not to say that they're not doing their job. They're not, they're not a good fit. You just got to be very strategic when it comes to that. So that's all part of knowing your audience, knowing which segment you're you're and positioning yourself to where you can you can bet or at least a closer bet that you have a higher percentage in your clothes. And you mentioned segmentation, and we can get technical with the STP, but Farad, is this the time to be segmenting further? Or is this, or, or because of the volume and the pace of the communications and so on, that we, we're, we, can, we can step back from the detailed segmentation? What's your view at the moment? I think if you have the capability, the systems, the staff, the resources to segment, it is a good time. I, I get a lot of questions on webinars like this about frequency. People are, concerns, their donors, their prospects, their lists are getting inundated with from other organizations, from them. We're worried about turning people off. I think, you know, to the point of who you have connections to, if you, the, the people who are really already on the bus really support you, they do want to hear from you. They want to hear from you more. People who have, are less connected to you may be turned off if they're hearing from you constantly. So segmenting by that connection or by their interest, if you know what they're passionate about, I think when you can segment at any point, it's always good and probably now uh, is even better because you are likely, not only are you communicating more, again, if your organization's on the front line, but also everyone else's. So if you have the tools and the time and the resource, it's still, you should be still segmenting. Julia, what does that mean for the way you adjust your stories in terms of how well you, you know your audience? And to what extent in, in, in this process of segmentation, is it really more dialogue? I, well, I, I think what's important to understand is that every organization is dealing with five distinct generations of donors. I mean, we have matures, boomers, millennials, Gen X, Gen Y, and then probably even a new generation that I don't even know the name of, Gen Alpha. I don't know what they're calling the, <laughs> Are we back, the, yeah, the we kids back to today. Double A. <laughs> um, but, you know, we don't want to completely generalize Uh, how every single person in a generation wants to receive communications. But it is important to understand that, you know, when people come to me and they say, we want new donors, we want younger donors, we want to reach a younger audience, but they want to continue, they want to cut and paste the old ways into the new ways. You really can't. So you have to be, you have to be willing to mold your story into a little bit of a new either a tool or a platform or a channel or, or kind of a new way of doing things. But I was just thinking about this the other day and I'm bear with me. I'm going to go a little bit of a tangent, but I just watched that new movie Scoob. I don't know if anyone saw it. So 
I'm a huge Scooby-Doo fan. I have been for life. My kids are huge Scooby-Doo fans, five years old, 10 years old. And my husband is a huge Scooby-Doo fan. So we watched the new movie and we were really excited. Okay. It was terrible. It was absolutely horrible. Don't watch it. I'm not kidding. It was terrible. And then I talked to my kids. I said, why was it terrible? And they said, well, you know, we love Scooby-Doo because of the friendship. We love Scooby-Doo because of the mysteries. And there was none of that. There was none of that in the movie. So to me, you can have all these shiny new tools and these shiny objects and you can throw some superheroes in there and you can, they had aliens and they had spaceships. I don't even know what they had, like gunfights. It was completely missing the point because I think they were trying to reach a new generation of kids and they were trying to get people involved in any way that they could and try to appeal to everybody. But when you try to appeal to everybody, your message really gets lost. So think about what makes you special. Think about why people love you. Think about what sets you apart and think about the story that you can tell that's really not only going to preach to the choir, but get the choir so excited that they're going to tell other people and bring other people on board. So even in the midst of COVID, even in the midst of live streaming and TikTok and all of these different tools, I do think that the message can get lost. So as long as you're staying true to what makes you special and why people love you and the problem that you're solving, that's really what's going to cut across generations and that's really what's going to resonate so don't be like the movie scoob sorry I really hate <laughs> right <this movie. laughs> cammy uh you mentioned a couple of things uh in your last response that i want to pick up on one is the is the focus on on corporate and how how you might want think of segmentation slightly differently because it's not generational uh but also then how that plays then into the individual individualized plans for the board members, which I know was a very popular recommendation and, and people are desperate for your templates. Uh, so we'll try and circulate those to uh, people who've registered. Uh, but can you talk about uh, sort of segmentation and, and those, those tensions with recurring uh, and large donors and so on when, when you're looking at corporate uh, and foundation gifts? Um, I love this question because this is exactly what I was doing for my client before this call. I think with corporations, we don't think about segmentation, but I think it is important. So there's different kinds of, I would actually do a broader um, focus on, so usually there's like individual donors and there's organizations. That's usually your two key types of donors. Under organizations, you'll have foundations, corporations, civic club, you know, all that kind of stuff. But under corporations, you have different industries. So for my client, you know, they're more health oriented. So I'm looking at health industries, I'm looking at tech, I'm looking at pharmaceutical companies, like what companies can actually, do we see some sort of an alignment to their mission? So this is why we go back to what is our mission um, and what are we trying to do specifically as an organization and what kinds of industries can we align ourselves to that can actually help partner with us? And don't get me wrong, you know, you can have different industries involved in, in giving to your organization. I'm more so, more so talking about low-hanging fruit. So for my client right now, because they're more health-oriented, I'm trying to figure out who are some of those health-oriented organizations can they connect with? And how can we begin determining mission alignment, co-creation, and those, those pieces? So I think that's very important. The other piece that I think is important, I think it's been mentioned quite a, 
a lot of times, but that also informs your communication, how you reach out to those organizations. One of the things that I do, and I'm also happy to share too with corporations is when I do corporate prospect research, so this is kind of like a hack for anyone who's like, how do I build my corporate program? LinkedIn is your best friend. So if you're not on LinkedIn, please get on LinkedIn right now. It is the best prospect research tool I have ever used. I have raised like a couple millions of dollars with LinkedIn. And what you do is whenever, so when you're writing a list of corporations, you write, you know, a list of who do I want to give? Is it Coca-Cola? Is it SunTrust Bank? Who do I want to give? But how do I make sure that their given priorities align with mine? And if there's alignment, so now we're doing prospecting and qualifying at the same time which is awesome. It's amazing for a fundraiser. After that, I'm gonna go on LinkedIn to determine who are those decision makers. Those typical decision makers are your HR folks, your marketing folks. So you're gonna go on LinkedIn. So say for example, Coca-Cola, I wanna reach out to Coca-Cola Foundation because they are passionate about sustainability. This is what we focus on. I'm gonna go on LinkedIn and look for the director of marketing at Coca-Cola. If they're local, even better. I'm gonna type in their name and, and just introduce myself. Just say, hey, you know what? I, I stumble across your page. I see that you're passionate about X, Y, Z. We'll love to set up a time to talk. This is actually a perfect time to do that. And then build those relationships. So if you're wondering, how do I even start like enhancing or building my corporate program? That's how you do it. But I, again, I'm happy to share that kind of like that Excel template because it's a great way to organize your corporate relationships so that you can target your messaging a little bit better. But what I, what I love about what you're, what you're saying there is you're basically using a very similar approach. Although we're calling it corporate, you're still, it's still the human relationship at the end of the day. It's just someone's wearing a corporate hat as an employee as opposed to their own personal resources. Right, Very true. Uh, and and Molly, when when you when you're looking at uh, boards and who need new blood, or you're looking at people to try and match them to boards, how does this how does this idea of of story and resonance with the why uh, play out? Do people come into uh, to that knowing that this is going to be expected of them, or you having to train people to to prepare them for this sort of uh, board role? I think it's it goes back to us as fundraisers and marketers being a little bit of therapists, kind of working with and and pulling the information out of them to say what's really your priority. There's a lot of of good to do in the world, and there's a lot of places that could use your help. So we really work with them to see what's going to be a good fit, um, not just on a logistical side but on the really what motivates them to go to a board meeting on a Saturday morning. Um, what motivates them to be in a really su super uncomfortable spot of asking everyone they know for money. Um, it doesn't come easy to everyone. And, and I think the nonprofits themselves have to qualify people too. Sometimes it's not a right fit. You don't have to say yes to everyone. Um, I think that's, you know, kind of how we're matching board members right now. Okay. Now, I just want to switch, well, the last couple of minutes here, uh, look at how uh, we think the rest of the year is going to go. I want to ask Farah if, uh, uh, from the sort of the front lines of, of, of communication, how are people starting to think about the way they need to 
pivot perhaps uh, their, 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 their messaging? What are, you, what are you hearing and what do you predict is, is just around the corner for us? I wish I could predict what was just around the corner from us. I, um, I have no idea. I think because of that, what we're really recommending, and I think most, most folks are doing, are just scenarioing out. If this happens, and this is what I should do. If this happens, this is what I should do. If this happens, this is what I should do. And I think, unfortunately, people are going to have to have a plan A and plan B and a plan C probably mm-hmm. for the next six months, if not year or two. I think there's this question of what's going to happen in the fall. Is, is this going to come back with a vengeance? Um, and I think we don't know. Um, we don't know when certain areas are going to reopen, when they do reopen, what's going to happen. So I think you have to plan for your communications. Um, so the work is even harder now. The biggest thing I would say is don't go quiet. I think communications is the first thing that gets cut in a crisis. Mm-hmm. And even as we're quote unquote, settling in, or there's the next ballot of where this is going, um, you can't turn it off and go completely silent. Okay, Julia, do you want to chime in there? I completely agree. That's exactly what I tell people when they say, and I, there's a conversation going on in the in a Facebook group that I manage. Should we have an event in September? That's probably the top question I get. Should I run a fundraising campaign? What's going to happen with Giving Tuesday? What's going to happen with annual appeals? What's going to happen with my event in September? And the only thing I can say is just to echo what Farah said. There's no guidebook. There's no playbook. There's no crystal ball to see into the future. And all we can do is create these scenarios and create these plans and say, this is like the best case scenario. This is the middle case scenario. And this is the world worst case scenario. Um, and this is what's going to happen during these three things. And trust me, I teach people how to make content calendars that go out a year. All that's out the window, <laughs> completely thrown out the window. So, you know, we, we can't fight what we can't fight. And we have to just understand that that planning is going to look very different now and embrace it because I think it's an opportunity to be agile, an opportunity to be imaginative and to, you know, hopefully try things we haven't tried before. Yeah, that that that's great. I, we we have actually now run out of time. I know this group uh, has so much energy and uh, excitement. We could we could probably go on for at least another hour. And I know I'd have a at least another hour's worth of questions. But we'll be back in a month in in June. So uh, thanks everyone. Thanks to the panel. Thanks to the respondents. Uh, there will be a podcast released in the next few days. The podcast is now available at all the places you can get uh, lovely podcasts. And there are some tools mentioned in the chat. I will try and get those out to uh, to everyone who's registered. And I want to just thank everyone and hopefully to see you next week, next Wednesday, on Nonprofit Problem Solver. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for joining us on the Nonprofit Problem Solver podcast. Special thanks to this week's panel of experts. Sherry Quam taylor Farrah Trumpeter, Julia Campbell, Nathan Webster, Tammy Charles, Marion Dirsch, Molly Hanley, and Tasha McCord-Poe. This episode was produced by Glenn Munoz at PodPro Audio. You can join future conversations live by visiting nonprofitproblemsolver.com. Connect with Kev on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. You're also invited to join a private Facebook group, Social Impact Practitioner, where every day we go deep into the practical and tactical work to accelerate your impact. Because good causes deserve better results.